0: Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast with Steve Gordon. Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon, and today we've got a very special interview for you. I'm excited about this one uh, because it's it's going to be a little bit different than things that we've covered in the past. And I think it's going to be probably, I'm just going to predict here, this is probably going to be one of our better episodes ever Um, And I've been looking forward to this for a while since we got it scheduled. So today I am speaking with Mike McKim. He's the founder and CEO of Kuvi Coffee. Uh, He is the pioneer of nitro cold brew coffee. So if you drink nitro cold brew coffee, then you'll need to reach out to Mike and thank him because he invented it. Um, And he has been trailblazing specialty coffee in Texas Um, and and now is spread uh, all over the country Um, and he he really first learned the craft and science of roasting coffee back in 1998 he went on a trip to visit his uncle in Reno Nevada and experimented um, since then with his own roasting style Uh, then he launched Cuvie coffee and they are a roastery that is sourcing just some of the most premium coffees from across the globe and uh, and now is distributing them all over the country Sadly, unfortunately, not in Florida, and so I'm waiting anxiously for the day that that they're stocked on the shelves here at our local grocery store. So, uh, Mike McKim, welcome to the Unstoppable CEO. I'm really excited to be talking to you.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Steve. I really appreciate it.
0: So this this whole idea of uh, the of the coffee business is a little bit of a departure from what we usually talk about here, but I think it's really really interesting because this is a business that's sort of had a a meteoric rise over probably the last 20-25 years and you've been in it for most of that time Um, and and so I think it's going to be really enlightening for people to kind of see that growth but before we kind of dive into all of that I would love for you to give everyone a little bit of a background on you and kind of how you got started in the business and and what you got you to this stage of your career.
1: Yeah for sure you know (laughs) I always tell people my uh my path is not the one that I would recommend particularly to anybody, um, but you know, it got me where I am today. So, um, looking back and reflecting on it, you know, these past particular these past um, uh, several years, particularly, you know, I've kind of learned a lot about how I ended up where I am, um, and maybe didn't realize the, the things that I was doing, you know, to help move me forward. Um, but you know, the short version of my story is when, when I was in high school, uh, my parents, my parents and I moved, uh, halfway through my junior year of high school, um, from Philadelphia to Dallas, which was a, a big culture shock for me. Um, I was already kind of having problems in school up in Philly, got down here and just kind of, um, you know, those problems magnified for me. So I was a little directionless. Fortunately for me, um, my parents had the brilliant idea to take me on a road trip to visit all of the Federal Service Academies in the U.S. So, you know, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, Coast Guard Academy, Merchant Marine Academy in West Point. And um, of course, I had no interest in that. And, you know, they took me kicking and screaming, but they planted a seed. And when I graduated high school, which I barely did, I had to go to summer school to graduate, that seed kind of started to blossom. And I thought, you know what? I think this is what I want to do. I want to go to the Naval Academy. So um, I contact the Naval Academy and I, I have this vision in my mind of, you know, somebody taking my phone call and then hanging up and saying, okay, you guys, you gotta, you gotta hear this phone call that I just got from this kid and all of them laughing about the idea. I mean, you wanted to go to the Naval Academy, right? That's very academically challenging. Um, anyway, I, I said, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take another path. So I enlisted in the Navy and, um, applied to get in the Naval Academy. So, you know, 1989, my first year in the Navy, I applied and didn't get accepted. In 1990, I applied and didn't get accepted. In 1991, I applied and didn't get accepted. Uh, And the whole time it was really fascinating because, um, I didn't realize what I was doing, but it just made sense in my head. You know, when I got assigned to an admissions person and man, I wish, I wish I could remember the guy's name, um, because I'd like to find him and thank him. But if I remember right, he was a master chief in the Navy. And, uh, I said, look, master chief, what do I need to do, you know, to, to even be considered for the Naval Academy? And, and, uh, you know, he says, look, your grades suck, your SAT suck, you know, you need to fix your academics. So take some college courses, you know, at night, do whatever you got to do. And, and really I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And <laughs> I started calling this guy, you know, at first it was, you know, probably every month to a couple weeks um, and just continued that cadence, you know, where every week or two, no matter where I was, even when I was deployed, I would find a way to reach out and say, Hey, mess chief, mess chief, this is what I did this week. You know, I took this test, I got this grade you know, I just passed this course, whatever it was, uh, you know, I, I kept him updated. And literally, you know, for three and a half years, just nonstop, um, stayed on top of it. Uh, long story short, I didn't end up getting accepted to the Naval Academy. However, um, I did end up getting an appointment to the US Merchant Marine Academy, which was, um, you know, apparently, these admission guys talked to each other. And, this master chief said, hey, look, you know, do any of you guys the other service academies have a place? This kid's ambitious. He's been working for three years. Um, so I was in Japan at the time. I get called up to my CO's office. He says, congratulations, Petty Officer McKim. Pack your bags. You're heading to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. And, uh, you know, a week later, I was in Kings Point, New York, and, you know, getting my head shaved and going through boot camp all over again. Um, but that was kind of – that was the – first time that I realized um, that consistency and persistence um, was not only a value that made sense uh, and was applicable to whatever goals you want to accomplish, but it was something that came naturally for me, which which I didn't know. Went up to King's Point and (laughs) academically couldn't hack it. Uh, so I ended up leaving Kings Point And from that, from that moment on, that was kind of a downward spiral in life for me. So that was in 1992, uh, 92, 93. Um, I ended up moving in with my, um, my girlfriend at the time, and took a job delivering pizzas, which was uh, nothing wrong with delivering pizzas, but you know, for a um, you know, for a 23-year-old, um, you know, young man who had already served in the military, it was kind of not the career path I had imagined. Um, <laughs> and through a series of events, ended up getting a job um, with a buddy in telemarketing. Got into telemarketing, realized that I was okay at sales, and um, I was with um, AT and T. And, you know, did telemarketing and moved into outside sales and had some success there and got married and um, moved back to Dallas, where my wife was from. And a buddy of mine from high school, we ran into each other and he said, oh, you're in sales. and That's cool. Why don't you come work for my dad? We sell fiber optic cable and stuff like that. And I was like, "Okay, I don't know what that is, but sounds great. I went to work for this company was a manufacturer's rep and um, it was during the dot-com boom. And the good news for me was I didn't really need to be a great salesperson as long as we had product on the shelf. All the phone companies were buying fiber optic cable, everybody was buying data cable, and um, there was a shortage, you know. it, it It was just the perfect storm to make lots and lots of money, which was nice. We took a vacation, my buddy Patrick and our wives, and we went snow skiing in Tahoe. And I said, you know what? I got an uncle I haven't seen in a lot of years. He's got a business down in Reno. Why don't we cruise down there and and say hi to him? So we went down there to visit my uncle and he owns a company that makes food analyzation equipment. And um, one of the things he was working on was an analyzer to um, classify the degree of roast of coffee. So instead of saying light roast, dark roast, you know, you put it in this machine, it was signed in a number and It's now the international industry standard for roast classification, but he had a little coffee roaster set up in his warehouse and, you know, I was like, okay, so tell me about coffee. And he goes, oh, well, check this out. You know, this is how coffee's roasted and we roasted coffee with him. And he says, "Uh, you know, what do you think? And my buddy Patrick and I were like, man, this is really cool. You know, can we roast more coffee? And he's like, yeah, sure. So instead of going skiing that day, we roasted coffee and we both kind of got the bug. To buy a coffee roaster and roast our own coffee. And so we did that, not knowing anything. We bought a a commercial coffee roaster, you know, it would roast 25 pounds of coffee at a time. And it was more than we could drink ourselves. So we started selling it to friends and family. And um, that's kind of how the coffee business started. Fast forward to, I guess it was like 2000, 2001, and the dot com bubble bursts. Um, I get laid off from my job. My buddy gets laid off from his job and we had been working at separate places at that point. And, uh, I said to him, you know what, man, I don't even like the telecom business anymore. I am really into coffee. I want to keep doing coffee. And my buddy says to me, you know what? Well, I want to keep food on the table for my family. So I'm gonna go find another telecom job. So we parted ways and, um, we parted ways. And then um, I kept going with the coffee business and I was roasting coffee in my garage in Houston and um, spent about 10 months pounding the pavement, not selling a single pound of coffee. And it was a really weird time because my uncle, when he got me into coffee, he said, look, whatever you do, spend a little bit more money on the raw product to buy higher quality and people will notice. And I said, okay, great. I'll do that. So that's how I started. I was buying, you know, really premium grade coffee, specialty coffee, what we call now, kind of before specialty coffee was even a thing. And I would go out and I would taste test it with people. And they would say to me, yeah, your coffee tastes way better than what I'm buying now, but it's 50 cents a pound more, so I can't buy it. Uh, So for 10 months, I was really unsuccessful. I met this this guy who was working at a coffee house. I went in to make a cold call and he was leaving that coffee shop to open his own. He says to me, I want the espresso machine that we have there. Can you get it for me? I said, yeah, of course I can get it for you. And then I'm, you know, I leave and I'm like, how the heck am I going to get this espresso machine for him? So fortunately, my uncle knew the guy that imported these espresso machines connected me I call this guy Joe and I say, Hey Joe, you know, I need to buy this an espresso machine from you. And he says, yeah, no sweat. Mike will sell you one. Do me a favor. You know, don't call me anymore directly. We're hiring a regional manager. She's based in Atlanta. She'll be your point of contact. And so I said, uh, okay, cool. Thanks Joe. Um, have you hired her yet? And he says, no, I, I said, I'll take the job. I says, what do you mean? I said, Joe, I haven't had a paycheck in 10 months. And literally the night before I made this call to Joe, my wife had said to me, "We have enough money to pay bills one more month, and we're totally broke." So I'm at this point, I'm kind of desperate, and probably showing my cards that I'm desperate. I said to Joe, "Hey man, I haven't had a paycheck in ten months. I need the job. I don't care what it pays. I'll take it." He says, uh, "Okay, thanks for calling, Mike." I call him the next morning, 8 a.m. Seattle time. Hey, Joe, this is Mike. I just want you to know I'm ready to start that job, you know, any point. So for the next two weeks, 8 a.m. every weekday morning, Seattle time, I called him and said, Hey, Joe, I'm ready to start. I'm ready to start, ready to start. Long story short there, they ended up hiring me, and that was in uh, 01. And from 01 to 06, I worked for La Marzocco selling espresso machines, and I always tell everybody that was my coffee MBA. Because I was working with all these really great coffee roasters, I was roasting coffee on the side, selling espresso machines to them, but because I was a coffee guy, you know we got along really well, we talked coffee all the time um, and then finally, in two thousand and six, my side hustle of roasting coffee uh, you know i was there was I was doing more of that um I was also selling more espresso machines than when I started. So I wasn't really doing either job very well and I had to make a decision, you know, what I was going to do. And, um, so December 31st, 2006, I declared myself unemployable and went full-time into cuvee coffee.
0: Wow. That's quite a journey. (laughs) Yeah. So you may have answered this within all of that, but, um, Clearly, to get to that point, you, you have to be what we would call unstoppable. You know, it's kind of the, the theme of the show, right? Um, what, as you reflect back on that, what gave you the confidence or the courage to keep going in, in all of the various situations where you just had to keep going and not quit?
1: You know, it's funny. And I listen, you know, I, I do a lot of reading on that and I listen to what other people say. And I, I think at the end of the day, for me, um, I, I just, I think two things. I, I didn't think, like it made sense to me. I didn't think I could fail. Like I I just genuinely believed if I kept trying, eventually I'd be able to accomplish something. Um, and then, you know, the second part of it is, my dad, I was chatting with him about this one time and uh, you know, he was just kind of, um, he was relaying to me that I, he actually told me one time when I called him on his birthday, it was just a few years ago, he said, Mike, I just want you to know that you've exceeded all of my expectations. <laughs> and there's one of two ways I could take that one, either his expectations were very low or, you know, um, I've achieved something that he's proud of. And I, I like to think it's the latter. But one time he said to me, you know, I think the bottom line is that um, you're just too stubborn to quit and too lazy to start over. And that's kind of why, you know, you kept, you know, taking the unstoppable path.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I'm sitting here making notes as you're talking and the thing that I wrote down, because uh, it reminded me of these banks that are too big to fail. Well, you were too stubborn to fail. <laughs>
1: Right. Exactly. Didn't know it at the time, but yeah, it seems that way.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in just that stubbornness. Like I'm going to get to this goal that I want, even if you, you know, I think from, from listening to you, it sounds like you had a clear picture in each case of what the goal was, but you didn't necessarily know how to get there, but you kept doing something. You found yeah. an, act, an action you could take that kept moving you towards it.
1: I, yeah, I think 100% that's accurate. And then the other thing, you know, that I, um, you know, as I work with other entrepreneurs and then also, you know, as I as I relay the story and, and try and share experiences with my two sons, I always tell them, look, you know, things don't always work out exactly how you think. So you have to be able to pivot, you know. Um, you just have to I mean if something doesn't materialize the way you envision it materializing that doesn't mean it's not going to work you just got to try something different or you got to try another path you know for me I wanted to fly fighter jets in the Navy and that's what I thought I was going to do and you know the bottom line is I couldn't hack it academically um, at the Merchant Marine Academy and so I had to pivot and find another path
0: yeah and you know, I think we run into that in life. Um, You know, you, you have this idea of what you want to do. You know, I, I'd love to play on the PGA tour, but (laughs) you know, there are some, some realities around my capability when it, when I have a golf club in my hand that is going to make that impossible, right? I could practice all day long, every day, and have the best coaches in the world, and it still probably wouldn't happen. Right. Um, And so, I I love the practicality of that. So you look at, I really wanna do this, but that door closes, and you reevaluate, and you, as you say, pivot, you go a different direction, but you've still got this attitude of, kinda no matter where I'm going, I'm just not gonna quit. Yes. And I think that's a pretty important skill, like having the flexibility as, as, as life and the world, the circumstances sort of present you with different opportunities. They close some doors, they open others, you know, you have to be flexible with that, but where you were inflexible was in your approach to what you were trying to accomplish. And I I think that's, that's a really key message that at least that I see in all of this.
1: Yeah. And you know what, it's a, you know, as I listen to other people, um, and talk with other entrepreneurs and stuff like that, it, it it seems to be a common theme, you know, that never give up, never quit, you know, be persistent. Um, you know, I I meet very few people who start a business and they're like, Oh yeah, I made a hundred million dollars my first 12 months. And, you know, it was great.
0: Yeah, no, I've, I've interviewed, uh, close to 150 people now, I'm still looking for the one who can tell that story.
1: Right, exactly.
0: (laughs) Find them, let me know.
1: Right, yep.
0: Well, but, you know, there's that advice out there that, you know, never quit, never give up. But that can be taken in, I think, a really destructive way. You You can internalize that and believe that, you're on a path. And even though circumstances are such that there's no way that you're ever going to be successful at that, that you feel like you still can't quit.
1: Y- yes. Uh, yeah, I agree. hundred percent.
0: Yeah. So I think, uh, th- I think what your story illustrates is that, you know, y- you've kept, you kept the attitude, but you, you adapted to the circumstances, which, um, you know, I think a lot of people need to hear And I'm, I'm really grateful that you shared that. I, I want to take a quick break and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the coffee business because um, I'm on about my fourth cup today. Okay. So I, I'm an investor in, in the industry and uh, uh, and I'm fascinated by this this whole idea of nitro cold brew and you can educate me on it. So um, Perfect. we'll be right back in a minute with more from Mike McKinn. Thanks so much. Now back to the interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Steve Gordon. And today I'm talking with Mike McKim, who's the the founder of Kubi Coffee. And and I think most notably the uh, inventor of Nitro Cold Brew. I'm sure there's somebody somewhere as they listen to this, they're enjoying one. Um, And it's just fascinating to me that um, this is now such a big trend and, and, you, you kind of started it all. So, I mean, as, as the coffee business, you know, you, you told us before how you kind of got into the business and how you started, uh, the roasting business. But as that evolved, how did you get into, to doing the, the nitro cold brew?
1: Yeah. The cold brew thing was funny. Um, you know, cold brew has been around a long time in a lot of coffee shops, what they would do is, you know, they would, brew coffee, they'd put it in a pitcher, throw it in their fridge overnight, and that's what they would use for cold coffee um, in their coffee shops. And I was never a huge fan of the flavor of that product. Um, the, the year that I quit my espresso machine sales job, the company kept me on as you know, a consultant, a part-time consultant for twelve months, and, and just because I had had some success in my region, I started traveling around the U.S. working with all the other salespeople. And one of the sales calls I was on, we're in this coffee shop, and I'm talking to this coffee shop owner, and I'm watching the baristas pour this drink off of a beer tap, and you know they're selling it to all these high school age kids. And I asked the guy, I was like, what the heck are you selling these kids? You know, cause I'm, I'm thinking some kind of beer. He said, let me show you what I'm doing. He takes me in the back and he's brewing hot coffee and he's dumping it into a homebrew keg, adding vanilla syrup and milk and then putting it on tap and serving it. And I thought, man, that is genius. And this was in 2007. So I got back home to Texas. And I started to go and visit all my coffee shop customers. And I said, look, the cold brew that you're making, put it in the keg, put it on tap, and you're going to blow people's minds. And then every, everybody says to me the same thing. They say, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And so finally, you know, you hear that a dozen times and I'm just like, okay, I guess that's a dumb idea. And then in 2000, and it was like 2010, 2011, I read this article And it said that 85% of all the tea that's consumed in the U S is consumed over ice. And I kind of flashed back to that cold brew on tap thing. And I was like, you know what, this isn't a dumb idea. And so I went on this journey to create a cold brew that was optimized to serve on tap. Right. That would have the right flavor characteristics. And as I'm going through that process, I'm in the warehouse one night and i um, tinkering around and I've got a, um, a four pack of beer and it happened to be um, left-hand nitro milk stout. And so there's four bottles in there and I'm reading the instructions in the bottle and it says, you know, pop the cap and pour hard into a glass. And so I do that and I watch this, you know, beautiful, you know, Guinness style cascade, you know, that whole nitro effect. And I was like, man, this would be cool to do something like this with coffee. So the next morning I call left hand through a series of events. I get connected to the head brewer there and just start picking his brain about nitro. Um, And then in 2011, you know, we launched our first nitro cold brew on tap at a slow foods event here in Austin, Texas. And everybody, you know, as I predicted back in 2007, or as I thought would happen in 2007, everybody's like, Oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever experienced. So then I was hell bent on canning the product, you know, making a ready to drink product out of it. So I started going down that path. And then of course, Guinness is the model for that. And in their cans, they have this, this device, they call it a widget and the widget um, actually holds nitrogen gas inside of it it's a hollow ball basically and um you know when you open the can that widget creates agitation and and you know enhances this nitro effect so i contact guinness and you know say hey, can you license the widget and once again i got laughed at <laughs> i was a i was about to just kind of scrap the whole project and be like all right we'll just we'll just can the product still instead of nitrogenated and uh Lucky for me, I read this press release and it says Oscar blues to launch old chub nitro in brand new widget cans from the ball corporation. So the next morning I call, um, Oscar blues and I'm like, Hey, this is who I am. what I'm doing. It's amazing people. I, I love the beer industry. Really good people. Um, they're like, yeah, come on up, see what we're doing. And so I went up there and, and canned beer with them, nitro beer for two days. and then. Fortunately for me, they were in Colorado. Well, the ball corporation, their one of their offices that was kind of spearheading this nitro widget can was very close to them in Colorado. So I went over there, met with the, the ball team, ended up shipping a keg of nitrogenated coffee up to them, came back and went into their lab and did a bunch of canning experiments, which ended up being successful. Um, and then, so we were the first people in the world to can nitro cold brew. Um, and we launched it in those ball widget cans, which we still use today. Um, and that was in 2014. Um, yeah, that, that was the nitro cold brew path.
0: So what what's intriguing to me about all of that is is the thinking process that you went through. So there, there was an experience that you had. With the the regular cold brew product that you thought was not optimal, you know it wasn't it wasn't the right experience. Right, and you you kept looking for a new solution, a new way to innovate that. And um, and to me, that's the lesson that everybody listening can take from this, because I, I mean, there's so many business owners who who kind of wake up and they go to work and. And they're sort of doing business the way that it was done the day before. And that's great, but that's that's a pretty you know, straight line path to being a commodity. But really what you're describing is a way to take something that truly is a commodity. I mean, coffee's traded on commodity markets. Right. And you're adding innovation to it. You're, you're adding an idea to it um, and adding technology to it in, in the form of of. the the can and the canning process and now you're creating a whole new category of product that you know at at this stage you know that was what 2014 so we're five years from that as we record that the the record this this conversation and it's it's all over the country probably all over the world frankly
1: yeah it's it is pretty amazing and um it it's it's kind of validating and frustrating all at the same time. Uh, you know, I was, I was, you know, doing a little rant to a friend of mine one time and you know, about how it's so difficult because you know, these buyers, they don't understand their cold brew had no category when we launched nitro cold brew had no category when we launched nitro cold brew. So I'm meeting with all these grocery store buyers and stuff and they're like, yeah, we don't even know where to put it in the store. And so I'm, I'm, you know, frustrated. And and a buddy of mine says, uh, well, Mike, you know that pioneers get all the arrows and settlers get all the land, right? And it it that has really uh, become very evident to me, particularly this past year, because you know I visited every large grocery chain in the U.S. last year to go to go into their line review and pitch Nitro Cold Brew to them, and There were, you know, a few people who definitely saw the vision and believed that it would would become a mainstream product. They were very few. The majority of the people said the exact same thing to me. They said, you know what, this whole Nitro thing, total niche. It's just a fad. It'll be gone next year. And then, you know, just earlier this year, Starbucks announces that they're launching Nitro Cold Brew in all their stores. Um, and so now it's, it's a genuine bona fide category, um, but which, you know, like I said, I feel like, you know, pat myself on the back and see, I told you so, but at the same time, that doesn't really, um, you know, that doesn't really help the bottom line. So now I got to go back into all those line reviews and go, Hey, remember last year you told me this was a fad. It's not. Well, so, I got to do that in a nice way though. Right.
0: Right. Well, so how, how do you, from a business perspective because people run into the same thing all the time. I mean uh, I don't care what kind of business you're in. I, I, I'm constantly talking with business owners who have ideas and then someone else, you know, comes along with either a very similar or an identical idea. Um, and what, what's your approach now that you've gone through this, you've had this experience and certainly there's a growing market for it that, that you'll go and capture. But as you think ahead to the next innovation, has it changed your thinking about how you're going to go about it
1: yeah I mean the it's a really delicate balance um you know because there's there's two people that I have to cater to uh one is a buyer and then the other one is a consumer um, and I think that what we've done. You know, historically so far, you know, I always think of everything as a consumer. Like I make products for me as a consumer. And so far that's been, you know, fairly successful. So I'm always thinking about, okay, what's the next iteration or, you know, what's the next project I want to tackle? It's the buyer one that's really hard because a lot of times, you know, contrary to what you would think, they don't always consider what the consumer wants. Um, and so, yeah, there's this, there's this dichotomy between convincing a buyer to put your product on the shelf and convincing a buyer that this is what the consumer will buy if you put it on the shelf, if that makes sense.
0: No, completely. Because the buyers have a different set of decision-making criteria and and their centers around if I buy a bad product or if I begin to create a string of bad products that I buy that don't sell, I'm going to get fired. Right. Right. Yep. And conversely, if I buy a bunch of really great products that do very well, I'll keep my job. But I mean, that's kind of what they pay me for here. So there's not a big, big upside, but there's a ton of downside. Yeah. um, And risk to them. Whereas for the consumer, you can look at the consumer and and say, well, this is the experience they want and I can fulfill that. And, you know, and, and, a lot of us go through that kind of, that dual, um, that dual customer challenge, you know, and how do you make them both happy?
1: Yeah. And it is a challenge, 100%. And, you know, to your point, um, you know, I, I'm glad that Starbucks has come out, you know, with this product because it's only gonna help, you know, um, grease the skids for us to be able to sell. In channels that, you know, may not have given us attention last year, but at the same time, you know, the amount of marketing that they're doing, it's so funny. I mean, we have, um, we have printed right on our can and always have, right? To explain nitro to people, it says there's a little pictogram of a pint glass, you know, with a foamy top. And it says nitro makes it creamy without the cream. And the first, <laughs> the first Starbucks commercial that I saw on TV, <laughs> what do they flash up on the screen? Creamy without the cream. And I thought, damn! <laughs> oh man, um, it's just uh, you know. So I guess the 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 big question is going to be, you know, are we going to be able to grab you know at least a piece of the pie that we helped start creating? Um, you know, with somebody who's got you know millions and millions of marketing dollars to push the product out, and if they want to flood the market. You know, with ready-to-drink nitro cold brew and cans, how am I going to compete with that?
0: Well, and I, I think the the question is uh, that's exactly it. How are you going to compete with that? And um, you know, may, maybe going to head-to-head isn't isn't the best way to do it. Um, but it's I think it's the same way that the if you look at at beer companies. So we've in I live in Tallahassee, Florida. We're a relatively small city in Florida. Um, may well, I don't think we have a quarter million people that live here. And so even in our little city, we've had, I think, five breweries pop up and, right. and, and all be very successful um, in spite of the fact that, you know, we've, we have Budweiser here. We have Coors here. We right. have, you know um, we have every other major beer producer here um, selling their stuff, pumping all of their marketing dollars in. And uh, I mean, I, I think it comes down to understanding who you serve and, and, and differentially serving them, you know? And, yes. um, you know, and so I, I was telling you before we started, I, I, that You know, I I didn't really understand this this whole cold brew thing um you know until we we talked a few weeks ago. And I'm kind of holding off now because I want to get it from the the source and (laughs) you guys aren't in Florida yet. But um, you know, but that that sort of becomes a badge of of honor for the people who drink it. They they say, you know, I'm you know, I'm the kind of guy or I'm the kind of gal that drinks. Cold, nitro cold brew coffee you know yep um and and that allows them to tell a certain story about themselves you know and if i drink it from the company that invented it that gives them the opportunity to tell even a different story about themselves versus their friend that goes to the starbucks and drinks the stuff that they could get on every corner in america right you know and so i think you know, I, I think that's that's the way for for folks who are listening. You, if you run into these situations, you've got to start thinking ab- about these problems of competition and in not in in like this kind of uh, fait complete sort of attitude where it's been done and now I'm out. But like, how do I craft a story that is going to be really important to a group of people that? you know, are going to buy my product or buy my service. Yep. So I'm, 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 I can't wait. Like the story isn't over yet. That's the cool thing. We need to have you back in like a year, right? Because this is going to be a big year for nitro cold brew. It Um, is, you know, because of what Starbucks is doing and because of what you and all of the other producers are doing, it's sort of like, it's, it's like the, the debutante year, right?
1: Oh yeah there's no doubt and it's um you know you touched on the craft beer industry um it's it's really amazing the number of people nationwide who have reached out to to Cuvée and said hey we want to launch a nitro cold brew product you know do you guys white label or co-pack I mean the um, the number of people is staggering so yeah it's going to be you know, and I think the coffee industry has always kind of lagged. You know, five plus years behind the beer industry. So this is going to be this is going to be just like the you know the craft beer era as it was growing. Um, you know, this whole cold brew era, and particularly nitro cold brew, is that's our craft beer and coffee.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. Uh, I mean, just if you look at and not just the the period of time that we've talked about so far, but if you go back to um, you know, the eighties, like when I was a kid, a cup of coffee cost like a quarter, right? you know, or a nickel maybe. Right. And it really didn't matter where you bought it. It was all the same stuff more or right. less. Um, and here we are, you know, 25 years, 30 years later. And, um, and, and that ceiling for this product keeps going up and up and up because of innovation from people like you. Yes right? Yep. I, to me, that, that's just, it's fascinating. It's interesting. It's very motivating too, from a business standpoint. It, 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 it's proof that anything's possible.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. It's also, it's kind of refreshing because, you know, I've been in the coffee industry for 21 years, um, you know, since launching this product in 2011. Now I'm in the beverage industry and they're very, very different. But I can tell you, just from my own experience in the coffee industry, it's been very stagnant for a long time. There has not been much innovation in coffee until, you know, cold brew and now nitro cold brew have come along. And it's, I think it's good for the coffee industry too, not just the beverage industry.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and for everybody listening that, you know, you're not in one of these businesses and you're sitting there thinking, well, how can I apply this stuff? You know, maybe you're an attorney and you you own a law firm, or you know you're um, you're a financial advisor and you're helping people with with their money. You're in the same situation. You're you're in a commoditized business, and the I hope what you take away from this is that the the only way to escape that commoditization is is to innovate. And uh, Mike, I'm I'm so glad you you agreed to come on and have this conversation and, and, and share your story because what you've been able to do, I, I know that, that you're probably feeling a little bit like, okay, yeah, I got all the arrows and somebody else came along and and got all the <laughs> land. But, um, but what you've been able to do in moving an in industry is really quite astonishing.
1: Thanks. I appreciate that.
0: Well, a- any final thoughts that that you want to share with anybody?
1: You know, I- I would say um, I, I work with a, a group here in Austin called Bunker Labs and they have chapters all over the U S and it's a veteran entrepreneur organization. And, you know, as I, I work with young entrepreneurs, you know, one of the questions that everybody always has is, you know, if you had one piece of advice, what would it be? And I've, I've struggled with that, you know, for a lot of years because I always hate kind of cookie cutter advice, but one of the, one of the biggest mistakes I feel like I made early on was um, when I was, you know, marketing my product. Um, I did it always thinking about what my peers were going to say. Like, am I using the right words? And, you know, instead of focusing on the consumer, I was focused on seeking approval from my peers. And And once I finally decided that Guess what, my peers, my competitors, all those people who may have opinions on what I'm doing or saying, don't buy product from me. And I started focusing, you know, on my consumer. Uh, that's really when our business started to, you know, exponentially grow.
0: That's brilliant advice, um, and and uh, I think a lot of people feel that that same pressure. You know, you go to the the industry association meetings, and sometimes you have you know, as much interaction with them as you do with customers and clients. Um, it's easy to get caught up in that. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad you shared that. So where can, where can folks find out more um, about Cuvée Coffee and, and where can they go to find maybe the locations where they can buy it if they want to go try it?
1: Um, you know, as far as locations, we had a map um, that we were trying to keep updated, but the um, you know, as we pick up more and more national distribution, it's it's, it was challenging to keep up with, you know, for a small company. So we actually pulled that map. So finding the product is, is going to be difficult. Um, however, if you go to dot you can always shoot us a message. Let us know where in the country you are. We can point you in the direction of, you know, somebody who carries our whole bean coffee or our nitro cold brew. Um, we've, um, We've had some some good success with, you know, some big chains like uh, Safeway out west and Ingalls, you know, further east. Um, and then, of course, in Texas, you know, pretty much all the big chains, um, you know, and Whole Foods and Central Market and Sprouts and HEV and, you know, all those places, they carry our product. And luckily, since we're here in Texas, you know, we have a lot of up and down the street business. So you can even go into, you know, some neighborhoods, convenience stores, you know, the carry craft beer, and you'll find our product on the shelf there, which is kind of cool.
0: That's awesome. Well, folks, um, go check out com. We'll link it in the show notes. And Mike, thanks for investing a little bit of time with me and, and sharing your wisdom with everyone.
1: Absolutely, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate
0: it. This episode of The Unstoppable CEO Podcast is sponsored by The Unstoppable Agency. That is the agency part of our business where we work with professional service firms and create a done-for-you marketing program. And what that looks like is we actually sit down with you. We come together and define your ideal client with you. We go build a list of those people, and then we begin reaching out to them on your behalf to book them as guests on your podcast. We call it Podcast Prospecting, and it's a fantastic way to connect with potential clients and influencers that can refer you and it's end-to-end a done-for-you system. And so if that's something that you think might be the right fit for your business, go to our website, go to unstoppableceo.net, you can uh, find there on the homepage a link to a video presentation that explains how it all works. And if you'd like, let's get together and have a quick 20-minute conversation and see if we're a fit. Again, that's at unstoppableceo.net, right on the homepage, look for a link to the video that explains how it all works.